Has Ben Simmons finally hit rock bottom? The MLB is a clown show right now, and why are we talking about voting rights in 2021? It's a gray area. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, wherever you get your podcasts. Distributed, as always, from Stillwater, Oklahoma by the Ocali Media Group at Oklahoma State University. Episode 3 of me recording from my bedroom here in Texas. My name is Grayson Singleton, as always. And last night, I was pretty disappointed, but at the same time, really happy that I got to see good basketball in the form of the Phoenix Suns. Now, obviously, in case, just to remind you, I did pick the Los Angeles Clippers to win the NBA Finals. And once again, they find themselves down 2-0 in the series. This time in the Western Conference Finals to the Phoenix Suns, who have played the first two games of the series without their point guard, Chris Paul. So obviously, you can see why I'm disappointed, because the Clippers were basically two Paul George free throws away from evening up the series and taking home court as the series now shifts to the City of Angels. But Paul George missed two free throws. And it set up probably one of the most exciting finishes of of a game of a playoff game in quite some time. Obviously, the next best would probably would be Kawhi Leonard's shot to send the 76ers packing the year the Toronto Raptors won the championship and then before that you can go back to LeBron James block on Andre Iguodala that helped the Cavaliers win their first NBA championship. But the more I watch the Phoenix Suns, the more impressed with this team I become because that one thing that the Clippers have that the Phoenix Suns don't, and basically every other team that we thought, hey, they can win a title, the one thing they have that the Phoenix Suns don't is that Phoenix's majority of their roster is so young. Devin Booker is in his sixth year, his first year in the postseason, and he's going absolute bananas. Uh, DeAndre Ayton, who has been fantastic. He's only in his fourth year, I believe. Third or fourth year. And then you have guys like Cameron Payne, who's bounced around the NBA. is actually first year back in the NBA after having to go to China and the G League to resurrect his basketball career. But there's guys, Mikel Bridges as well. Key players that are just so young. Monty Williams is a first-time head coach in his second year. But the added veteran presence of Chris Paul, and let's also not let's also not discredit the presence of Jay Crowder as well. Somehow, some way, this team probably looks like the most organized team in the NBA. And the more I watch the Clippers, which by the way, I'm not ashamed that I picked the Clippers to win the NBA Finals. I mean, they've gotten as far as the conference finals, so I don't look like a complete idiot. But the more I watch the Phoenix Suns, whether it's with Chris Paul or without, I marvel at how organized they are. When I played AAU basketball, one thing you could always tell are the teams that were well coached. And one particular year of AAU basketball, I wouldn't say my my team was well coached. We had a lot of athletes. We had a lot of guys that could score the basketball and play defense. But I wouldn't say we were particularly well coached. We went up against a team 
that one year, and basically every year of AAU basketball I played, it's always, and I'm going to get a little stereotypical here, but it's but it's funny. There's always that team of white dudes that has the one black point guard, right? That just happen to be so well organized. Like, they set fantastic picks. Their defense is well in sync, and the chemistry in terms of passing off players, switching, and when they hit each other on offense is just so in sync. And that comes from coaching, and that comes from playing together. And you'd always see that that one AAU team full of white dudes with, like, the one black point guard and the black head coach. And they would always give you problems. <laughs> oh, boy. Um, those were one of the teams that I hated playing. But basically, the Phoenix Suns remind me of that. They, they pass off players so well. Their defensive coverages are always in sync. The chemistry between the ball handlers and Coach Monty Williams is next level. And they can ride that to an NBA to an NBA Finals. I would not be surprised at all if the Phoenix Suns were able to finish out the series and beat the Clippers. Now, obviously, I wouldn't be surprised if the Clippers were able to come back from this 2-0 hole to advance to the franchise's first NBA Finals. But I will say one part of this series where I was completely wrong. And I thought the the Suns would miss Chris Paul more than the Clippers would miss Kawhi Leonard. As a matter of fact, when I heard that both of them were going to be out, at least for the first part of this series, which now I'm starting to wonder when Kawhi Leonard is going to come back, just because we don't know the severity of that knee injury. When I first heard that both of them were going to miss part of the series, I thought Phoenix would be in trouble because Chris Paul takes this team from a pretty solid team that can maybe be in the 7th or 8th seed in the in the Western Conference to the team that's now in the Western Conference Finals because of his veteran leadership, because of his skills, because of his competitiveness, because of the contagious fire that he can light, not just for himself, but for everybody else around him, including the coaching staff. Chris Paul is the quintessential point guard, which basically means he is an extension of the coach that is on the floor. So I thought that having that such of a valuable piece out indefinitely would hamper the Phoenix Suns. But the Phoenix Suns have gone on as if nothing has happened. Cameron Payne has stepped in and has been fantastic. Now, obviously, he's a different player than Chris Paul. Um, I think he plays faster than Chris Paul, which at their stages of their respective careers, that can be expected. And Cameron Payne is not as skilled as Chris Paul, but man, does he play hard. He plays hard, and Monty Williams has figured out his rotation with not having Chris Paul in the lineup. And that's what I think has hampered the Clippers to a degree, is that their rotation seems all out of whack. Now that Kawhi Leonard's not in the lineup. They got away with it in the last couple of games against Utah, just because I think the Clippers are just head and shoulders better than Utah. And I think that showed. But last night, in Game 2 of the Conference Finals, or it would be Tuesday night, depending on what day you're listening to this, they had a lineup, the Clippers did, on the court with Rondo, Reggie Jackson, Terrence Mann, Nicholas Batum, and I believe it was DeMarcus Cousins. 
and that offense just didn't function. And you would never see that lineup if had Kawhi Leonard been in the lineup because you would probably have Paul George in there somewhere. But I don't understand playing Reggie Jackson and, Ron, and Rajon Rondo in the same lineup at the same time. I feel like you can play Jackson and Beverly, but I don't think you can play Rondo with one of the other two listed point guards at the same time. And that lineup just looked dysfunctional as, as I'll get out. But the Phoenix Suns are rolling. Uh, DeAndre Ayton, this man is becoming one of the better big men in the league. And he's and I would have hated to see him go up against Rudy Gobert because the Clippers found a way around Rudy Gobert in the conference semis. But DeAndre Ayton has a jumper. He's extremely athletic. He can protect the rim. He's not he's not the same shot blocker that Rudy Gobert is, but he can protect the rim. And he's a great, fantastic rebounder. And he runs the floor better. So I think DeAndre Ayton, who can still also play with his back to the basket, is one of the better, if not the best big, in basketball right now. And he stays healthy. Shout out to Anthony Davis. So the Phoenix Suns might be the most interesting team to watch right now. But do you know who the most interesting player this offseason is going to be outside of the prospect of Cade Cunningham going to Detroit? Ben Simmons. For years, we've known that Ben Simmons can't shoot. Like, we know this. We knew this when he was coming out of LSU. We knew that his strengths were his elite ball handling, his Hall of Fame level basketball IQ. He's developed into a fantastic defender. I, I think he made all defensive team this year. He has all of the skills and IQ of Magic Johnson and LeBron James. The best way I can explain why Ben Simmons is maybe a couple steps above useless in the playoffs is because Ben Simmons' presence on the floor shrinks it. <clears throat> if Ben Simmons does not have the ball in his hands, and he is anywhere past seven feet from the basket, you can pretty much ignore him, just as long as you make sure he doesn't back cut you and dunk it. Because how the 76ers are constructed is based off the driving kick. Guys getting in the paint like Seth Curry, like Tobias Harris, and other guys on the wing. But if you have a guy who doesn't space the floor, that means more clutter for those guys that are trying to get into the paint. Not to mention that it also hampers Joel Embiid because it makes it easier to double Joel Embiid. Basically what I'm saying is Ben Simmons had better learn how to shoot. Or else he won't be a star in the NBA for much longer. And you saw when Nate McMillan and the Atlanta Hawks... By the way, congratulations to Nate McMillan. Stepping in on the interim basis and taking this team that was slipping out of the Eastern Conference playoff. Taking them all the way to the conference final. 
when he went to the hack of Simmons or hack of Ben, whatever you want to call it, strategy, Ben Simmons' psyche went out the window. And Ben Simmons is not a guy that you would think of that has a self-esteem problem. Ben Simmons is a pretty self-confident, some people would call him arrogant, kind of person. And maybe that arrogance has gotten him to the point where he thought he was too good to learn how to shoot the basketball. But you saw when he went to the free throw line and bricked free throw after free throw after free throw on his way to setting the record for the lowest free throw percentage in a, in a single NBA playoff. His confidence went out the window. It got to the point where in key possessions late in the game, Doc Rivers had to take him out. He couldn't be on the floor. Has Ben Simmons finally hit rock bottom? I think that's our question. Because you don't need me to hop on the train of Ben Simmons is done in Philly. We know this. Ben Simmons cannot function, cannot be on the Philadelphia 76ers. But to me, Ben Simmons cost the 76ers a chance to go to the NBA Finals. I believe they would have fared well against Milwaukee. I think they're a great enough defensive team to take down Milwaukee. But the fact that Ben Simmons could not shoot did not give them, cost them that opportunity. So he's done in Philly. But if Ben Simmons wants to resurrect his career, he most definitely can't. And the best example I can give this, I can give of this is Giannis, Milwaukee's best player. And we know Giannis can get to the basket, get you a spin move, a, a Euro, can, and can dunk over you. He can finish with a finger roll. He's a very good playmaker. His IQ is coming along. A fantastic defender, two-time MVP. Giannis and Ben Simmons have a very similar skill set. Giannis also was known as a guy who could not shoot. But when needed to, in Game 7 of that Eastern Conference Finals against Brooklyn, and all throughout that series, if Giannis needed to take a shot, he could take a shot and he would make some of them. Because even though Giannis can't shoot, you can see the work he's putting in. And he's a, and he has improved as a shooter. Because the Nets' strategy in terms of defending him was, let's not guard him. Unless he comes to the free throw line. And how many times did you see Blake Griffin just stand at the free throw line and wait for him? And as the series went on, and as Giannis was able to adjust to how he was being guarded, he just started pulling up from the top of the key. Or just inside the arc. And he made them pay from time to time. You don't drop 40 in an NBA playoff game if you can't shoot. And Giannis either did that or came close to it in most of the games in the Eastern in that Eastern Conference semifinal against Brooklyn. In the NBA playoffs, that's impossible. Unless you are just a dominant big man, there is no way to score 40 points without being able to shoot a jump shot. But that is a credit to the work that Giannis puts in in the offseason. 
maybe Ben Simmons does put in work. I mean, I'm pretty sure he keeps his body in shape because he doesn't get hurt very much, at least with like chronic injuries like Joe, uh, not Joel Embiid, Anthony Davis does. He seems to keep up his conditioning. We never have a problem with him coming back in shape. His ball handling never seems to deteriorate and his IQ is always there. But becoming a the best player you can be is working on your weaknesses. And Giannis saw that his weakness... By the way, Giannis is just one of the more humble guys in the NBA. And he's just always willing to work. You can see it in everything that he says in post-game interviews and press conferences to how he lives his life off the court. Giannis is a worker. Ben Simmons, on the other hand is a guy who sees that he has a lot of talent and maybe wants and wants to take it to live a Hollywood life. That's Ben Simmons. And so far he's parlayed that into a $140, $140 million contract. (laughs) Excuse me. So if that's Ben Simmons goals in terms of his professional basketball career, he's done that well. But if he wants to be the best basketball player that he can be, because Stephen A. Smith says he's a jump shot away from being LeBron James 2.0. Could you imagine Ben Simmons, 6'10", with the handles of a point guard, with, with the handles of Chris Paul, with the IQ of LeBron James, with the passing ability of Magic Johnson, the ability to run a team like Steve Nash did, and with the swag of say Nick Young there's your quintessential entertainer basketball player I mean this guy could be more unstoppable than Kevin Durant is if only he had a jump shot that's all he has to do is develop a jump shot and the months from now until October are a pretty good time to develop a jump shot and it's not impossible a lot of guys have developed jump shots as their careers went on. But Ben Simmons has been in the league far too long and is digressing as a jump shooter. And people will come to me and like, well, Russell Westbrook can't shoot. Yeah, Russell Westbrook can kind of shoot. Russell Westbrook, no, he can't shoot, but he still makes you think that he might be shooting. Ben Simmons' shot is so broke and non-existent that the thought of him even shooting a jump shot is foreign. You see how he shoots free throws? It's the most broke thing you've ever seen. Ben Simmons, after hitting rock bottom, and this just doesn't apply to Ben Simmons. This applies to just people in life. When you hit rock bottom, what what do you do? You can fold it in and... Just say, woe is me, or you can try to fix some of your mistakes. And Ben Simmons, yes, he will be traded. I don't believe he will be a Philadelphia 76er next year. I believe the Sixers will be better off without Ben Simmons. Ben Simmons now has to look in the mirror and say, how can I benefit the next team that I play with? And it'll be interesting to see who that team is. But Ben Simmons has to make up his mind to work. And then maybe 
he can start an ascent like Giannis. And by the way, before we shift away from sports for a minute, Giannis is just a good example. The more I watch the Bucks, the more I watch Giannis, and I listen to him, man, that's that's just that's just a great example of how to go about your business. I know I don't play sports anymore, and there's a lot of things I wish I had done differently when I was playing basketball. But nevertheless, that's that's in the past. But I can apply those same work ethics that I see from Giannis into how I'm trying to improve as a broadcaster. I can do that. Just a thought. Let's transition to the United States Senate. And we'll, and we'll get back to sports in a minute. If you like juicy baseball cheating stuff, hang with me. Voting rights. I did a segment about this about a few months ago when the first anti-voter bill was passed in Florida. Since then, 30 states have passed bills that the bipartisan and uh, voting rights lab, which tracks developments in state election rules, have described as, as anti-voter. 18 states have enacted more than 30 laws describing this that are described as anti-voter. Senate Democrats were trying to push a bill through Congress that would give the federal government the ability to override such laws. Now, before we get into this bill, let me let me refresh or remind or even enlighten on what these bills in these states are. So basically, these bills require strict, and this, this is the main part of the bill that most people like to focus on, strict ID laws is what they try to play them off as. And I'm, I'm all here for strict ID laws. To vote, show your driver's license. Cool. Like, that That should be standard. And if it's not, I'm not quite sure why it isn't. But in, but in fact, they need to make a law of this. I'm all cool with that. If you dig deeper into these bills, that's where this starts to get a little dicey. In a, in a lot of these bills, and I'll take Georgia as an example because Georgia was the first to do this. Offering food and water to people in long lines is now a misdemeanor. Early voting has been slashed in urban counties, or not just in urban counties, throughout throughout the state, early voting has been slashed. Mail-in balloting is now harder than ever. Okay. Based on that, I'm going to tell you why this is such a problem. Because these... Laws that are being passed that have been passed in 18 states. By the way, most of them Republican. I'll get to why that's that's a big deal in a second. It's because these laws will affect inner cities and young people in terms of voting. And how will it affect inner cities? Because inner cities are the ones that need 
or that have longer voting lines. And they need their early voting to try to spread those lines out. But instead, early voting has been slashed. Also, offering food and water to people in these lines will make it more difficult for inner city people to vote. And the reason why is because you're standing in longer lines that are for like three, four hours, at least two. Instead of, so so of course they're going to get thirsty. And in a government class I took this past year, we talked about something called opportunity cost of voting. And one reason why election turnouts haven't been as high as they were in 2020 is because sometimes the opportunity cost is just too high for people to vote. In the case of inner cities, you can see how the opportunity cost is high. You have to stand in line longer. And that's why I like early voting, because it gives you an opportunity to spread out those lines, and you know you, you decrease to the mean. Also, with the mail-in ballots now being attacked, that limits the fact, that limits how young people can vote. And when I say young people, I mean like 18 to 24. Kids that might be off out of state in college. So that means they have to make a long trip home, rather inconveniently, to vote. And I have friends at Oklahoma State that utilize mail-in balloting. And it's fantastic. It gives everybody the opportunity to vote as conveniently and easily as possible. These two demographics, inner city minorities, really, and young people, are the, are the bulk of the reason why Joe Biden is the president right now. Now you kind of see why I brought up the Republican part of this. Because if you follow my work, a lot of, when I talk politics, I try to leave political parties out of it. But this, but this one, you just can't. So Senate Democrats were trying to push a voting rights bill through Congress that would require the federal government to require at least 15 days of early voting. As well as other provisions to basically make sure that the, that the most amount of people can vote. And his charge to his fellow senators from Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer says, quote, are we going to let reactionary state legislatures, that's actually a good use of the word reactionary, drag us back into the muck of voter suppression? Are we going to let the most dishonest president, which might be a stretch, in history continue to poison our democracy from the inside, or will we stand up to defend what generations of Americans have organized, marched, fought, and died for, the sacred right to vote. Now, I don't quote Chuck Schumer very often because Chuck Schumer does say some very, some very interesting things from time to time that I just don't agree with. That one I do. That, that one I do. Because if there's two things that make America America, it is the right to vote and the freedom to protest. Both are under attack from the GOP. Freedom of protest has been, under, has been attacked by the GOP ever since Donald Trump took his stand against Colin Kaepernick. And voting 
has been under attack ever since um, Donald Trump tweeted stop the count. And then Republicans have just taken it so far and so far and so far. And what kind of, I want to ask this question. If we're going to restrict voting and we're going to attack people from you from using First Amendment freedom of speeches, which, by the way, there have also been laws passed in numerous states that are labeled anti-rioting, which if you want to make sure that riots don't happen, cool. Just don't encroach upon people's right to organize, to march or to protest. Which is kind of something that I believe is the lasting legacy of Donald Trump, particularly with how he handled Colin Kaepernick. But I want to ask this particular question before I get back to Senate Republicans, who, by the way, banded together to vote against this bill. This bill was killed before it could even be debated in the Senate. What, is, what makes America special if we so badly restrict the right to vote and attack people who use the First Amendment? What sets America apart from basically any other free country? What makes America more special than, say, Canada? What makes America so much more special than France or Great Britain? If you make it the hardest possible for people to vote, and now that's where I get back to Republicans, because it seems like Republicans are being, as Chuck Schumer described, reactionary to the fact that Donald Trump lost the election and then proliferated lies throughout the society, which led to what happened at the Capitol on January 6th. By the way, something Republicans are hell-bent on making sure is never investigated, which seems to, which is, which, to any thinking person, that should seem like a problem. Because if you are innocent of all charges you might want that to come to light i don't know like that's i don't know if that's just how i operate but when i when i saw that republicans banded together to kill that bill the only thing i can leave with as a rational thinking american is these republicans should be utterly ashamed of themselves they should be ashamed of themselves Because this is voter suppression that we have not seen since black people were discouraged from voting. This this is voter suppression because they have because there have been laws passed that so starkly disenfranchise the very people that are the reason Donald Trump is still not the is not the president right now. That's that is what it is. There's no way there is no. Partisan, no conservative, no liberal way around that fact. That is just an undisputable fact. And what it and what this is, is like a sports team that lost, so they tried to change the rules. That's what they're doing. They're changing the rules. There could also with part of these bills, there is congressional redistricting, redistricting, excuse me, which is a concept that I'm not totally familiar with, so I'm not going to broach it necessarily but there are sweeping changes to how you can vote and they're raising the opportunity cost for people who at least in the last midterm 
and the last presidential election voted against them. They're raising the opportunity cost. And this is and this is just a basic human function. If the opportunity cost continues to go up, the less likely you are to do that particular activity. So what they're hoping is that after the greatest exercise of democracy we have ever seen in the United States of America, they are hoping that voter turn, voter turnout declines by so much that a Republican president takes office again. That is what's going on. Because now they're in a situation, Republicans are, where the country is doing quite fine under President Biden. All of the fears, except, except for except for federally endorsed abortion, I think all of the fears that have come with having Joe Biden as president have not come to pass. What were some of these fears? Mandatory and enforced vaccines has not happened. Mandatory and enforced mask regulations, quite the opposite. Nobody's wearing masks anymore. And that's a good thing. Um, what else do we fear would happen if Joe Biden became president? Police would be abolished. Not even close. There's a, as a matter of fact, there is a police reform bill that is currently going through Congress that Democrats and, and Republicans are working on that should become law here real soon. Crime is crime uh, was feared to be rising. Now, that, that one is true. Violent crime and gun violence has gone up. But I think that's the only fear of having Joe Biden as president that has come to pass. By the way, Joe Biden and the White House just unveiled a new plan to curb gun violence. So we'll see how that, how that goes in the coming months. Plus, the economy's doing quite well. Yeah, gas is more expensive, but more people are working. As the country continues to recover from the economic shock, shock that was felt due to the coronavirus pandemic. So Republicans are in a situation where the country is doing quite well. That they fear that they may not be able to get back in office. And this is all proliferating from the lies on no in November that Donald Trump started to spew, which resulted in the Capitol riot and now is resulting in this sort of of petulance. Because when you lose, this goes back, just another sports analogy, when you lose, you try to do better and figure out how you can win next time. That's called competition. You don't change the rules. Like, that's, that's crazy. So Republicans, hey, why am I so hard on you? Because I like you guys. I like y'all. The country does quite well under Republicans. As a matter of fact, the last time the, the economy was at its strongest was under Republican President Ronald Reagan. So you lost this time. That's okay. You know, one of my favorite Mitt Romney quotes, the Republican senator from Utah, one of my favorite Mitt Romney quotes is when he addressed the situation after the Capitol riot, after he voted to impeach Donald Trump the second time. He said, he said something like, we can't do this when you lose. Because yes, losing sucks. You want to know? You want to know how I know this? Because I lost. Mitt Romney is such a class, is, is a classy guy to me. Yeah, he lost to President Obama in 2012. But he's continued to go on with his political career 
And I one that I believe he has done quite well in. So let's start there. Hey, Republicans, you want to you possibly win next time? Put Mitt Romney on the ticket again. Let's run that back. How about Ron DeSantis? Somebody who handles the media very, very well. Now, I do believe the only thing I have against Ron DeSantis is that he played into this, this feeling that wearing a mask is an infringement on American freedom, which I don't really agree with, that it's an infringement on freedoms. I think that's a, it's a temporary fix to a temporary problem, but not, not a rise of a dictatorship. That's the only thing I have against Ron DeSantis. Otherwise, he's done a pretty decent job managing a very dysfunctional state with some weird citizens. Who else can we talk about being president for the Republicans? Uh, Tim, Tim Scott. And, he, and, and he's quite an interesting weapon. Well, let, let me not say that. He would be somebody that would appeal to African Americans, minorities, and conservatives. Because there's a lot of minority conservatives out there that may not have voted Republican because the guy was Donald Trump. That is a thing. And there's and there's so many other Republicans out there that you could possibly put. But to but to the Republicans, just because you lost doesn't mean you should try to change the rules. And one of my principles when I commentate on things like this is what kind of example are you setting? And I know we're long past the point where we should be looking to politicians for examples for our kids. But if there's one thing that Republicans are, are showing an example of what not to do, it's this. You don't get to change the rules because you lose. You go back, you get back in the gym, you get back in the weight room, and you try to be better. Now, is this Republicans that are trying maybe for this ploy to paint Democrats as the enemy as we head into the midterms? That is a plausible theory. That is a more than plausible theory. And if that's their strategy, okay, fine. I don't know how you're going to do that with the country doing as well as it is. But but nevertheless, it's a nevertheless it it is a possible strategy. But I think they really need to look long and hard as to what is going to be our plan for the twenty twenty four presidential election instead of passing of widespread voter suppression, because that will not endear you to anybody. And you want to know how I know that? By the way. I think it's time for a new Senate minority leader as well because I'm sick of Mitch McConnell and his and his reasoning and what comes out of his mouth. Because first, in the first infrastructure bill, when the president and Senate Democrats, the Senate Republicans were trying to get a bill passed on infrastructure, he described it as socialism in the form of infrastructure. And then... With this bill, Mitch decided to say this. Quote, a transparently partisan plan to tilt every election in America permanently 
in the Democrats' favor as a recipe for undermining confidence in our elections, end quote. Mitch, that's what y'all are doing. Just at the state level. And with how the Electoral College works, you just have to win those certain states. So be better. Be better, get better, and maybe the situation will change. But I think if more people start to think like this, Republicans can fall into a further and further hole in Congress. Because there are states like Florida, states like Texas, historically Republican, that are turning bluer and bluer by the day. Just another something for you to think about there. But today to me is not a good day for the Republicans. There are a lot of people that will think otherwise. Obviously, I live in Texas. Half the year, the other half the year, I live in Oklahoma. I'm surrounded by people who who probably will think differently. But I think there are people around the nation that can view this as, oh crap, we're going toward voter suppression. Which which to that, I would say, Republicans, stop treating Democrats like the enemy. Because right now, you guys have to do better. And I believe they can. And I believe believe the majority of America does not want Joe Biden as a president for the next seven years. So all you've got to do is get better, and then maybe Republicans have another president again. Which would be perfectly, perfectly fine with me. But let's transition away from that to this. Major League Baseball is a clown show right now. And last week, we saw the passing of a, I almost said bill, (laughs) a rule in Major League Baseball that is a crackdown on foreign substances for pitchers to affect spin rate. Spin rate, excuse me. And on Tuesday, we saw the first of routine umpire checks. We saw Jacob DeGrom get checked. We saw Max Scherzer get checked. We saw other every starter get checked in their glove, in their hat, and on their belt buckle for any type of foreign substance that they might use on the ball. Now, if they are found in violation of this rule, it is a 10-day suspension with, with pay, but that player cannot be replaced on the active roster. Which in baseball, the amount of bodies you have is, especially in the pitching ro- in the pitching rotation, is quite important. It can alter everything. Okay, so that's so that that seems all fine and cool, until you saw the shenanigans that occurred in the nation's capital yesterday, when Phillies manager Joe Girardi asked the umpires to check Max Scherzer two innings after he was already checked. And Mad Max was not having any of it. As a matter of fact, after he mowed down the Phillies in a subsequent inning, he walked back to his dugout, staring down the Philly manager. Basically, Joe Girardi took exception to that. Joe Girardi was ejected from the game. But then we saw it later that night with Sergio Romo, and we're going to, and we are going to start seeing more of this. That pitchers are just going to be checked throughout the game, and throughout the game, and throughout the game, and throughout the game. It's going to slow the game down, pretty much make the game kind of ugly, especially if managers can willy nilly request umpires to investigate players 
for you using a foreign substance at any point in the game like Joe Girardi did. And this is just another case <laughs> of Major League Baseball just stepping on its own feet. Because yes, you're trying to eliminate cheating in a sport in which cheating is part of the sport. It's just been part of the legacy of baseball. You can go back to the Black Sox. You can go back to the steroid era. And basically, any point in between, Pete Rose, we had a re-up of the PED era in the late 2000s, early 2010s. When guys like Ryan Braun, Alex Rodriguez, Nelson Cruz, and others were caught. Cheating is just etched in baseball. It's, it's, it's like the same concept of critical race theory that I talked about on my last episode. Remember, critical race theory says that racism is embedded in society. And it's just a social construct. Obviously, I don't believe in that. But in terms of baseball, if you want to take critical race theory and apply it to baseball, you can say cheating is a social, con- is a social construct of Major League Baseball. It just is. Every, they just cheat. Shout out to the Astros and the Red Sox as well. So the so Major League Baseball is saying, wait a minute, we have this reputation that we're a cheating game, which they are. So let's try to try to um, eliminate this as much as possible. And now they're step and now they're just stepping on their own feet. There's got to be a more efficient way to to go about this. Maybe you ban pine tar or resin or sunscreen or whatever is underneath that banned substance policy. Maybe you ban that from a com- completely from the clubhouse. How you would enforce that, I don't know. But you've got to find a more efficient way to do this instead of stopping the game and checking pitchers at the whims of each and every manager. Furthermore, you have guys like Tyler Glasnow who just strained his UCL, which is a ligament in your elbow, who blames the new rule for his injury because I guess Tyler Glasnow has been so habitually using foreign substances to get a better grip on the ball, which I'll talk about in just a minute, that his body breaks down when he can't cheat. Now, how ridiculous is that? Now, you may be now you may be saying, well, in football, they use gloves to get a better grip on the ball. This is very true. However, gloves do not alter the physics of the game of football, the way pitchers were using these foreign substances to alter the physics of baseball. Let me explain. For years, we did think that these substances only helped pitchers to get a better grip on the ball, which if that was just the case, then I don't, I think this would be overkill. However, thanks to high definition cameras, as well as record low batting averages and records in strikeouts, and probably will be records in no hitters as well, because it seems like no hitters are happening every week. Thanks to all of that, we are finding out that these substances are affecting the spin rate of the baseball. Basically altering the physics of the game in ways that gloves don't do for football. It would be like in basketball if you had shoes that that severely and flagrantly altered how high you could jump. Now, obviously, some guys can jump higher, 
but if you could track it to the shoes. That may be an imperfect analogy, but I think you get where I'm coming from. You're altering the performance. Now, is performance altered by wearing a glove versus wear, not wearing a glove in football? Yeah, I guess. I would rather catch a football with a glove than catch it barehanded. But it doesn't alter the behavior of the ball itself. Whereas foreign sticky stuff in baseball is altering the behavior of the baseball. And that's why Major League Baseball was forced to, was forced to crack down on it. But my real issue here is with two people. One, the players, like Tyler Glass now, who are blaming injuries. Who are blaming injuries on the fact that they can't cheat anymore. That's like if the Patriots, after Deflategate, stunk for the next two years in the playoffs, came up short in the playoffs, because, and then blamed the fact that they couldn't deflate any more footballs. Because a football in January, properly inflated, is much harder than a football in January that has been deflated. So that would be like the Patriots coming up short in the playoffs and saying, well, we just didn't perform well because the balls were properly inflated. Like, how idiotic is that? To blame your performance on the fact that you can't cheat. So that's number one. And number two. The managers. Come on, guys. The rules in place, it's not like the pitchers are going back to the dugout between innings and getting sticky stuff after they've been checked. So basically, this is slowing. So basically, if managers continue to just mobilize and weaponize the rule, the game's gonna just gonna get ugly. That that that's all that's all it's gonna happen. If the pitchers have to take remove their glove, remove their hat, remove their belt, in the case of Sergio Romo, drop his pants to be investigated for a foreign substance, the game's just gonna look uglier, and the view and the viewing production is just not going to be good. So there's there's a fine line here in terms of utilizing this new rule. But here's what this comes down to. If baseball is going to continue to act in this way, and I say this so many times, it's, I feel like I've I feel like I've addressed this in now every single episode that I've done from my bedroom. If Major League Baseball is going to continue to have to endure its declining popularity while simultaneously acting like this, simultaneously shooting themselves not in the foot any longer, but now shooting themselves in the leg, then baseball deserves to decline in popularity. It's just plain and simple. Players, don't blame your injuries or don't blame your decreased performance on the fact that you can't cheat anymore. And managers, don't weaponize a rule like James Harden would do. And this is why Jacob DeGrom is some of my favorite is one of my favorite players. Jacob DeGrom, he got checked before before his his start and then just and then the very first player struck him out on 3 101 mile an hour fastballs. Jacob DeGrom is a great pitcher who does not need to cheat. So the rest of you who might be declining because you can't cheat anymore, get better. And I feel like that's the theme of our show. And with that, that'll be it for me today. This has been the gray area. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, wherever you, wherever you make it your podcast. Check out my work on YouTube by search by searching Grayson Singleton and give me a follow on Twitter at gray underscore singleton too. We'll see you next time. God bless. Keep cool and remember, there's always an area of gray. <laughs>